Place, a book about poverty in America. We have Kathy Eden and Timothy Nelson, both of Princeton University. Uh, this isn't your first go around, uh, Kathy, with uh, a book about poverty. You you uh, co-authored with uh, Luke Schaefer, correct? Yeah. Was, so this is actually my <laughs> this is actually my ninth book. Ninth book. Um, oh, yeah, we're, we're slow here. Book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in 2015, we published a book that received a lot of attention on the rise of extreme poverty, of two dollar a day poverty in the U.S. in the aftermath of welfare reform. So that book was called. $2 a day living on virtually nothing in America, where, where we used both big data and ethnography to chart the lives of America's poorest people. Now, the the, the difference, I guess, that you make, and you may, you put this right in the uh, the introduction of the of the new book, the uh, uh, the injustice of place, uh, is places you went to all over the country uh, that had poverty also had extreme wealth. That that's sort of how do, you, how do you explain that? Or I guess you do it in the book, but how would you explain that? Timothy, well, just, what about you? Would you? Well, um, so that's, so we, first of all, we um, created this index to really discover what were the most disadvantaged places. And it, the index included not just poverty, but issues, uh, health uh, measures, and also social mobility measures. And we crunched all the numbers and we uh, came up with um, a ranking and ranked um, all 3,000 or so counties and the 500 largest cities. And we really came up with this index and then we took a map and saw where the clustering was. And so we uh, identified the, uh, the Cotton Belt South, Appalachia, South Texas, and the um, uh, tobacco growing regions of the Carolinas as the most disadvantaged places. And then the question was, what did all these places have in, in common really? And so that took us into a deep dive into history. And so this is a very long answer to your question, <laughs> but, um, but these places were built on economies of extraction um, and they were all tied to single commodities that were um, on the global uh, market. So there was a lot of wealth generated in these areas. If one thinks about the antebellum, you know, mansions in the South, for example. So um, although these places are characterized by um, lots of, of poor and disadvantaged folks, there, there are local elites still in these places who have inherited the, um, the wealth that was generated in these places generations ago. Kathy, I know in, in the book, the there you have some proposals to offset this i guess we could say long-standing uh i don't know the, the, the injustice uh, it's in your book it's in the title um by the way i like the the a minor thing here the cover of the book with the, the chipped paint on the uh yeah. that, how subtle that's very good I, it's <laughs> it can't be subtle if i notice it but anyway it's it's something there uh, but no, what are some of the things we can do about this? Because I guess that's uh, that's the $64,000 question. Yeah. So um, what we found, right, is that these these um, places had these legacies that in common, almost feudal um, class structures that, that arose out of these single commodity economies. Um, but we wanted to understand more than just the historical context. So we embedded uh, graduate students into these places and we ourselves um, visited these places over and over again. We interviewed people 
uh, everyone from the poorest to the poor to the to the local elites. We hung out at community events and we really tried to understand the the fabric of these communities and and from from bringing together this big data with history and with this rich ethnography, uh, we identified what mechanisms were actually keeping these places mired in deep disadvantage for decade after decade after decade once once these mono economies had kind of crumbled uh, in the 1960s. And so we see a legacy of separate and highly unequal education uh, that continues to characterize these places today, including uh, the preservation of segregation academies all across the South that were stood up to resist Brown and still have large numbers of white students attending uh, violence. These are among the most violent places in the nation, something we had not anticipated. A uh, corruption is rife in these places. Um, uh, so the local elites have continued to extract resources from these, these regions through controlling a local political office and often being arrested and thrown in jail for graft, vote buying, uh, even consorting with, with drug dealers in the Appalachian drug trade. I'm sorry, when you, when you meet with these folks and you go to these communities, um, I'm, I'm curious and I imagine it varies, but what, so what are these elites, the so-called elites have to say when you say, Hey, you know, you've got poverty here. You've had it for a hundred years or whatever. Um, what, what's their response to that? Well, it's interesting. There are some good elites <laughs> who really recognize this. Our, that sounds like idea. another book title right there. Right. <laughs> um, distressingly, I think this was most common in, in Clay County, Kentucky, which is one of our sig signature communities. Um, if you talk to local elites, they often blame their very, the poor among their midst for their bad behavior and they don't want to work. And all of those you know, um, stereotypes about the poor and really lay it at their feet as saying, if they would only get themselves together, we could really progress. Um, so there is, um, I think, a misrecognition among the elites that the problems um, are, are other people's uh, fault. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's some people um, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Johnny Jennings, who is a local politician and LaFleur County, Mississippi's county seat of Greenwood, who, um, you know, has been involved in city government a long time. And he uh, he sat down with us and said, you know, if only we would have responded to Brown v. Board differently, if only we wouldn't have set up that segregation academy in that farmer's field, um, you know, with the help of uh, Robert Tut Patterson, of course, who was also the founder of the Citizens Council. If only we had gone to school together with our black neighbors, we could have been in each other's wedding. We could have sat down and had a hamburger together. Things would be so much better now. So um, I, I should also say there are new there are new people coming into these places. Mostly there are people um, from the non-elite class that are um, that have gone away, and they've um, gotten advanced degrees. They've gained uh, really impressive credentials. And they're coming back to their hometowns to give back, starting charter schools, community centers, anti-violence programs. So um, there are new people in town who, who have the interest of the community at heart and are, and are coming back with a motivation um, to rebuild uh, something that they lacked uh, when they were children. Well, you make the, the point in the book, and you just said it, Kathy, um, We've got to face the fact that we're as segregated now 
as we were prior to the Brown versus Board of Education decision of the 50s, which I, I don't know. Would that surprise people or not? Because I'm thinking you go to any major city and, and not some I'm in Peoria, Illinois, which is a small city. Um, and it's it's that way. It's it's the 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 urban center is largely black and the surrounding territory is largely almost overwhelmingly white. And, and I think yeah. that's carried out across the country. So how, wh what do we do next? Well, there was a moment where these uh, desegregation orders really had an impact. And many more black and white children were living um, in desegregation or were experiencing desegregation um, than are now. So we've seen a process of resegregation uh, in recent years. And during those years, um, kids who were black kids who were exposed to 12 years of a desegregation order, this is the research of Record Johnson, an economist at Berkeley. Um, those kids performed as well as the white kids in their schools and the white kids uh, didn't pay any price. So we mm. have strong evidence that things can be different. We've done it before and we can do it again. I should say um, that the voucher, the universal voucher programs, many states are adopting, especially southern states, are contributing to this new wave of resegregation by using public taxpayer dollars to allow students to withdraw from uh, schools that might be more more um, integrated and attend segregation schools, including these former segregation academies, many of which still exist. Uh, we're talking with Kathy Eden and Tim Nelson, uh, the two of the three authors of The Injustice of Place. And what, what feedback are you getting, uh, both of you, um, on the book? Because I, obviously you're making the rounds and uh, you, you've already made the rounds of the country in doing the book. But now that you've got the the data and, and you've got a website, and we should mention that, Kathy, you mentioned it to me, the injusticeofplace.com is a place people can go to find more of the information that uh, you gathered for the book. Um, so what, what kind of feedback are you guys getting? Well, it, we've, um, yeah, as you said, we've been out talking to people, different uh, radio pro program, podcasts, and so on. We've also had the opportunity to talk to uh, some folks in the um, the administration, particularly those dealing with rural issues, uh, they seem to be very motivated and are um, are welcoming our attention on this and and some of the ways that we've tried to uh, think about some policies uh, to help these folks and so on. We really haven't heard much from the places themselves yet, so we're. Um, kind of waiting They're still for, reading. for that feedback. They're still reading. <laughs> probably, probably not liking. You know, one one we, we had a an excerpt in the Atlantic um about a month ago, right when the book came out. And um, you know, Tim looked at the comments. I didn't look at the comments, but many people wrote in, well, why don't people just move? Uh -huh. And uh, one one thing that's very interesting about these places is they have had very high levels of out migration to cities like Chicago, uh, where Tim and I happen to be right now. And uh, what's interesting about that story is that they were received so poorly and treated so badly uh, with jobs literally fleeing <laughs> as they came into communities in cities like Chicago that many of them ended up returning. Oh, really? So um, conditions are really harsh when you try to move to opportunity in the north. And uh, while some succeeded, uh, many remain mired in, in poverty today in 
uh, communities like North Lawndale, um, Little Village, Pilsen, um, Uptown, and the surrounding areas. So we still have um, these laborers and their descendants mired in poverty, but more of them in cities. And then many of them saying, um, hey, I'm going back home because it's, right. it's, not, it's not good here. And so that's why we see, you know, 60% of African-Americans now living in the South, a very high number, 44% of um, Hispanic Americans living along the U.S.-Mexico border. Wow. So you see, you see that uh, you know these folks historically haven't haven't been able to win, and that's why we think it's so important not to continue to ignore these regions as we've been doing really since uh, the war on poverty. You, one of the and I know there's a number of things here, but and uh, Tim, you made this point about the places that are hardest hit, and uh, rural America certainly comes out as uh, you know having a large share of of poverty. Um, can, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, and maybe this is just sort of fanciful, but can rural America kind of repopulate itself, um, a little bit because, you know, there's been such an, an exodus from the small towns, um, over the years. And I, I guess by everybody and not, not everybody, but, but by, uh, both rich and poor, perhaps, um, do you see that changing or, or, you know, how, what will, what will affect that? Because it seems like that that's a tough a tough sell right now. Well, one thing that these places really need are jobs. Um, right. And so we saw some of this. This is particularly true in, in places like LaFleur County, Mississippi, where in the, um, the 70s and 80s, really manufacturing did come into these areas. So there were little, you know, sort of modest sized factories that were there. And that all pretty much went away in the 1990s. And one thing we talk about in the book is that our trade policies, particularly with NAFTA and the rise of China, really devastated these places. Um, and so, so what we do sort of in policy as a nation, we think of as affecting the, the nation as a whole. But some of the places, and particularly the ones we talk about, really bear the brunt of some of these decisions. So factor after factory in the Mississippi Delta, across the Cotton Belt, in the Cotton Belt, you know, Russell's, Russell Stover candies. Every town has a story of a plant that was beloved, a Baldwin piano in the community and, and died. Mm -hmm. So if that had been allowed to continue, um, you know, this is when the, when the manufacturing uh, um, class was very interested in investing in the Sun Belt. Uh, we could have been telling a really different story today, but there's still time uh, to um, reconsider uh, our trade policies and really think about um, about how, you know, a, a policy that was very controversial at the time is said to benefit the nation as a whole really crushed um, a, a more diversified set of economic structures in these exact regions. And so now what can we do to um, to repair that mistake in a way that brings justice uh, to the working people of these areas. No, not to get political because uh, that's, that's a whole different story, but it sounds like, you know, you almost in inevitably to, to, to make change, somebody has got to pick up the ball on this. I, I don't mean a particular party, but representatives had need to go. And you talk about trade policy, you, you talk about, you know, one of the points you make in the book, too, is 
uh, these these federal spending sometimes doesn't go the way it should. Uh, you know, and and that's understandable. Probably in every, probably you know, eternally that's been true. But throwing money at the problem may not be the the answer if if the money doesn't go where it's supposed to. You know, these places um, have been among for decades, mm-hmm. <laughs> even centuries. Uh, these places have been among the most corrupt places in the United States, and a, a lot of that is because the elite class was an extracting class. You know, I grew up in rural Minnesota where people invested in their farms because they imagined they would be ha- passing them on intergenerationally. Um, right. But you now the way the South worked was take the money and run, you know, take the mountaintop off the mountain and move <laughs> on to the next mountain. So so because of that, there's almost um, a, a tradition among these elites to continue to extract. So when we do send many of these places, we need to think about elite capture. And we need to figure out ways to get money to poor places um, that don't run that risk. And we also need to encourage new people to run for office. Many of the people controlling these places are the very descendants of the first capitalists who settled in these areas. Um, you know, it's quite remarkable. Um, reform candidates try to run, they often fail, but there are ways to encourage that. L- local journalism, especially nonprofit journalism, has been key in uncovering the corruption in these areas. Uh, Mississippi Today's Anna Wolf, of course, won a Pulitzer Prize for uncovering uh, the welfare scandal in Mississippi that really emanated from LaFleur County. And that's a nonprofit leader there. That brings up a a sad point, especially for those of us that have worked on a newspaper, and that's, unfortunately, the trend there is not a good one. I mean, more power to the nonprofit uh, muckrakers and, and folks that are digging in but uh, the papers themselves, the the media, yes. has gone the wrong way, right? I yes. mean, in in helping this, um, you're in Chicago, both of you today. We're talking again with uh, Catherine Eden and, and Tim Nelson, the authors, two of the authors, Luke Schaefer's the other one, "The Injustice of Place," a book about poverty in this country. You're in Chicago, and, and one of the big issues there, it's around the country, of course, is. Uh, dealing with the migrants that have been um, bussed in from, well, I won't say from Texas, but they crossed the border and Texas sent them up to Chicago. And now they're right. talking about tents, tent cities in for the for winter. The winter. <laughs> yeah, for the winter coming on. And, you know, those that have been around this part of the, the country know that's that doesn't augur well. I just had a fanciful thought, and I, I'm not laying it on you two to figure it out, but, you know, let me share it with you. And that's so why is this just Chicago's problem or any major city? Why can't rural America pick up some of the migrants? Because they could use them. I, I, I say use them in the wrong way, but they could help provide diversity in communities that need it. Is that is that a far-fetched thought? You know, it's interesting. Um, for For generations, people have been coming over the Mexican border and they've gotten absorbed yeah. Uh, so we tell the story of, you know, Eagle Pass is very close to where we did our field work in, in Crystal City in South Texas. Um, so so this has been going on for generations, you know, and now we're really seeing failed states uh, sending people through Mexico. Uh, so not necessarily Mexican migration, but right. failed states sending people through Mexico into the United States. So uh, certainly, you know, uh, we spend some of our time in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, where we live. Uh, full-time. And, uh, you know, that's a depopulating city. 
that's also a city that's welcomed waves of migrants, especially from Central America. So I, I think we could be creative about this and we could see this as a real win for the United States if we could figure out ways to, to create um, welcoming homes all across the country. Perhaps this is something our charitable sector can can focus on. We have 133,000 nonprofit organizations in America. Perhaps our churches, synagogues, mosques uh, could take the lead uh, as many of them did uh, with the first wave of Vietnamese refugees to this country. So we, we certainly could be more creative than putting people in tents in the middle of a Chicago park. We'll, we'll come back to that one. We, we need to work on it. Um, when, when you uh, look at the problem and, and you know, obviously this problem is, is longstanding and, and you guys make that point. And the, the history is fascinating. Uh, fascinating is probably not the the right term. It's it's, it's, it's sort of uh, scary in a way that it's it's ongoing and ongoing. But do you think if you guys keep keep at it, the message will get through? I mean, are you, are you optimistic? Because I'm, I'm thinking you guys got to be strong. You're mired in all these uh, facts about poverty um what 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 uh what are you what are you feeling i think some of the things are really more tractable um so one of the things we haven't talked about yet is this idea of social infrastructure or the physical places where people gather in a community and we have a uh, a chapter in there really focusing on manchester which is the county seat of clay county kentucky connecting a decline of social infrastructure to the rise of uh, opioid addiction and uh, overdose and, and so on. Tim, and when so, you say, I'm sorry, when you say social infrastructure, can you define that a little bit? Because sure. I'm thinking people who have bowling alleys, golf courses, yes, uh, beauty parlors, okay. all these kinds of spaces. They're sometimes called third spaces, which are not home and not work, but where people actually gather um, and run into other people who are not necessarily like themselves. So right. um, parks are another great example or libraries. Um, and so to think about how we can invest in those kinds of things at a local level, which will have really um, effects much greater than, than we anticipate and, and really could mitigate some of the more serious social problems that we're, we're seeing face the country. Just just two stories of optimism. Uh, yeah. One is uh, a young academic named David Elwood uh, several years ago <laughs> um, had this idea. Why don't we make sure the, per the working poor have a fair shake? You know, mm -hmm. we do a lot to help people who don't have, uh, who are, who are um, the poorest of the poor. This is no longer true, by the way, but it was true when, when Elwood was thinking about all of this. What are, we, what are we doing to help the working poor? And so he had, came up with a little proposal. He presented it at the National Governors Association. This young guy from Arkansas rushes the podium. Uh, he then becomes uh, part of the Clinton administration and the, and the policy is implemented, the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is now the largest anti-poverty program in the United States, lifts more kids out of poverty than any other program. Similarly, uh, we were part of a drumbeat um, with $2 a day, really encouraging the U.S. to think about a, an expanded tax credit. And people would say to us, oh, that's so pie in the sky. That will never happen, you know. <laughs> but but uh, those of us who were part of the drumbeat kept going. And sure enough, um, during the Biden administration, we actually saw the largest decrease in 
recorded history in child poverty um, in part because of the fact we had an expanded child tax credit uh, for a time um, during those years. Uh, sadly, we've let that lapse, um, but I think there's still a lot of enthusiasm for, for an expanded uh, child tax credit to support parents in the very important work they're doing of raising the next generation. Well, we thank you both, Kathy Eden, Tim Nelson, uh, authors, co-authors of The Injustice of Place. Enjoy Chicago. Uh, it's not not uh, winter yet, so uh, that'll be good. Um, you you probably got another book going on, Kathy. You got nine down. I, I think you got to go for ten. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll stay tuned, right? <laughs> okay, Steve. Wonderful to talk with you today. Thanks so much, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.